Uh, today we are taking a look at uh, all things Africa. As President Bush returned from his tour of the African continent last week, much media coverage focused upon the Bush administration's so-called successes in individual African countries while ignoring the systemic continent-wide problems that uh, U.S. policies continue to promote. Uh, here to help us make sense of what the situation is on the African continent and uh, indeed to remind us that Africa is a continent and not a, uh, a country uh, is Michael Swigert from Africa Action. Michael joined the Africa Action staff in the fall of 2007 after interning uh, with the DPAC team earlier that, uh, that summer, DPAC being Department of uh, Policy Analysis and Communications. Uh, the relationship between the crisis in Darfur and Sudan's other conflicts and the challenges posed by so-called vulture funds to the effective cancellation of the debt of Africa, African countries are among the focuses of his research and analysis for Africa Action. Michael holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Tufts University, where he was active in the Experimental College and the Institute for Global Leadership. At Tufts, he developed a passion for global social justice through student activism, activism teaching, and research. In 2005, he spent the summer as a volunteer teaching in Ho, Ghana. His commentary on U.S. foreign policy toward Africa has been featured by uh, been featured on outlets such as XM Radio, KPFK here in Los Angeles, the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, Voice of America, and it goes on and on and on. So uh, Michael Swigert joins us this morning on KUCI. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. How, uh, how are things in D.C. right now? Uh, it's, it's a little chilly, but we're, we're doing well. Well, I, uh, I wish we could send you some of our 80-degree uh, weather right yeah. now, but, uh, but uh, be that as it may. Um, so we're here today to talk about uh, Africa and uh, the Bush administration's legacy. But let's begin by giving a brief uh, primer or a tutorial on the African continent. When uh, I was just telling you off off the air that uh, I listen to some world music and when you go to the record store it's always interesting to see in the world music section you know they'll have a section for uh, for Italy and they'll have a section for Spain and they'll even Irish and so forth so they'll break down world music everywhere else according to nation and then when you get to Africa it's just Africa and so it's very easy for people to assume that Africa is a country rather than a continent. So could you give our listeners just a brief tutorial about uh, the African continent? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's an incredibly important point. And, you know, it's, it would be really difficult even in, you know, if you had a couple hours to do a full tutorial of the African continent. Um, but, but the point you're making that it is, you know, a diverse place, um, you know, rather than just a single country is, is incredibly important. You know, there are 54 countries in Africa. Um, it's approaching 1 billion people uh, living on the continent. And uh, both in terms of population and, and just geographic area, it's, it's enormous. You could, Africa, um, just from the, the physical area of the continent, you could fit uh, Europe, the United States, and China practically um, within the, the borders of all the countries that make up the, the continent of Africa. So, you know, within those you have hundreds of language groups, um, many different religions, um, different, different cultures, and different political, economic, and social conditions. So um, I think it's you know, anytime, whether it's an analyst or just a, a person in casual conversation, anytime we talk about Africa as if it is one place, just one country or, or one, you know, one way of life, um, then, then that's problematic. 
It's a, a billion people, you said, correct? With with fifty four. Yeah, not not quite a billion yet, but they're um, they're they're approaching that. I think estimates are around nine hundred thousand now for the continent. We'll we'll say a billion just for the sake right. of argument. But you know, it's just amazing to think about. Uh, you know, when one looks back at. Uh, uh, whether it's the Bush administration or the Clinton administration uh, before that, uh, such a large uh, percentage of the world's population, and yet United States really seems to ignore uh, the African continent. I mean, look at how much focus we've placed on uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, just countries that, granted, they might be, uh, you know, hot spots on the global landscape. But if we want to talk about people and lives and issues and and so forth, it seems that Africa really is is a neglected continent in terms of U.S. Uh, foreign affairs. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's and it, it, it's not as if there there's no relationship between um, you know the daily lives of, of people in Africa and you know those of, of Americans or, or people in the West or of U.S. policymakers. You know, there Africa is is still engaged in the global trading system. Um, it's still you know there's uh, African products are are exported. Africa's um, as as a whole, the economies of the continent over three quarters of. Um, African exports are agricultural commodities or other primary goods. So, um, you know, you, this, the stereotype of all these countries being incredibly poor um, is, is in, in large part uh, due to their, their place in the global trading system. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely important that in, if we're going to talk about sort of a post-Cold War order or, we, you know, the, the rhetoric the U.S. uses to describe uh, the importance of democracy and human rights um, and development in the world, that if you ignore Africa and take Africa out of that picture, um, it's it's really a problem. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at some of the uh, the issues confronting uh, the African continent. Uh, let's begin with what what should hopefully be uh, be the most obvious, though maybe not not in in a, a kind of perspective, mm-hmm. and that is uh, the HIV/AIDS pandemic, right. which uh, Africa Action calls the greatest global threat in the world today. Explain that. Yeah, um, I mean, I think in it's it, there were there was a new report that was released um, last fall that got a fair amount of media attention um, from the the UN Association or the, the UN Bureau that does aid statistics and the, jointly with the World Health Organization um, that announced that there was sort of a leveling out of HIV prevalence levels and, and AIDS infection rates all over the world, um, except in Africa. So uh, Africa remains very much the center of this pandemic. Um, it's it's the leading cause of death um, in Africa, which is just mind-boggling, I think, to try and comprehend how, I mean, it, it varies a lot country to country, um, but in places like, like South Africa um, or, or even countries like Botswana, you know, both, both those places that have um, comparatively more stable governments um, and are sometimes touted as, as development success stories, you know, when this is a place where, where one in five people is, is affected or in particular communities, um, within those countries or even in places where overall the prevalence rates are only, you know, are, are below 10%, but in, in certain rural communities or, or poor urban communities, you'll have, you know, two out of five people um, living with HIV. Uh, it's just a, a tremendous part of, of people's daily lives that the international community has made commitments to, to do something about. Um, and in 2005, um, at the, the G8 summit, um, you know, committed to, to end this problem. Um, it's part of the Millennium Development Goals, but 
the, um, and there's been some progress, but we're not on track to, to meet those promises that the U.S. and other rich countries made. The statistics that, uh, that I have from Africa Action says that uh, Africa is home to uh, about 10% of the world's population, mm-hmm. but uh, close to 66% or two-thirds of uh, those living with HIV, AIDS, Worldwide, I mean that is uh, such a, a not only a disproportion, but a majority of uh, people in the world living right. with HIV/AIDS are uh, are in Africa. When one follows the news, uh, you know it seems that the Bush administration does receive praise mm-hmm. for its uh, funding of. Uh, you know, AIDS relief for the uh, the African continent. I have had uh, guests on my program in the past mm-hmm. from from local uh, centers, uh, hospices, mm-hmm. and, and even they and and these are are not conservatives by any right, stretch of sure. the imagination. And even they say that uh, compared to past administrations, the the Bush administration has done some good. Can we put? some of this in perspective does does the bush administration deserve praise where are the criticisms help us figure this out mm-hmm. i mean i think there you know it, it's it's absolutely a fact that there was has been a lot of new money committed under the bush administration to to deal with um hiv aids in in africa um i think the question one is is how much money um really is that in relation to the promises that um you know, that the U.S. government and, um, and President Bush made before they actually appropriated this money, and how effectively are those programs being implemented? I mean, what, what we saw in the, in the Bush trip when he went to, you know, these, these five countries for six days um, was he was meeting with, with community groups, like you said, um, HIV-AIDS clinics or um, student organizations that were, were working to raise awareness about the pandemic, um, and places that were success stories, and absolutely there are some success stories. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that um, the, the program hasn't received um, enough funding yet. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's much better than nothing. And, um, and equally problematically are the, some of the restrictions, ideologically driven restrictions, in the PEPFAR funding that uh, the Bush administration pushed for. So let's, let's kind of peel this uh, peel us apart for uh, for a minute. Yeah. Uh, in 2003, mm-hmm. uh, President Bush committed 200 million dollars a year to support uh, the Global Fund for uh, for AIDS. Um, now that might sound great, 200 million a year, but uh, in put that into some kind of perspective. What what percentage does that actually constitute, or or you know how do we standardize that? Yeah, well, in um, I mean, first that's that's in comparison to the overall U.S. budget, um, you know, just for the um, for the federal government as a whole, or even even as a percentage of foreign aid, that's low. Um, I mean, the the number which um, you know uh, Jeffrey Sachs, the the famous economist, came up with um, of 0.7 percent of overall GDP, so less than one percent of of GDP is the amount that that is pretty much universally accepted as a goal for development assistance, um, not just for the U.S., but for for all wealthy donor countries. Um, And we are still well, well below that. So $200 million a year um, doesn't begin to approach it. I think now now the estimates by by public health experts are that just for HIV-AIDS programs, um, not including tuberculosis and malaria initiatives, which are um, important to integrate with uh, AIDS programs, so just for HIV programs alone, uh, it would be $6 billion a year um, if the U.S. is to live up to the commitments it made um, to, to support treatment. So say that again. So in comparison to the $200 million a year, 
if if the United States were really to uh, contribute its uh, global share, mm-hmm. uh, it would be six billion a year. Yeah, six billion dollars a year, um, and and just just for HIV/AIDS. Which is even more than what your website currently says, which was about four billion. So as you said, the numbers have been ch- right. changed I since think, then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's um, there there's been some some debate about um, you know the, the way the the language and the legislation is drawn up, um, whether or not all that money would go just for for HIV/AIDS or to other um, integrated global health initiatives. So I think that the numbers that um, the public health health experts that we work with are come up with 59 billion would be the total amount for the next version of PEPFAR if it were to include earmarks for tuberculosis and malaria as well. And we certainly want to put all of this into perspective. I mean, uh, one of the courses I teach uh, is a course on white collar crime, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes it's it's easy to be uh, overwhelmed by the amount of punitive damages awarded in cases until we remember that, uh, you know, even a $20 million fine for a Fortune 500 company is uh, equivalent to a $100 parking ticket. And then, of course, they're tax write-offs anyway. So so when we talk about $3.5 billion uh, a year, this is 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 rather small mm-hmm. considering uh well let's just compare say to the war on terrorism i mean it, it's easy to refer to uh you know the, the terrible term islamo fascism whatever that might be uh to refer to that as uh the greatest global threat which is what the current administration uh and even those in the democratic party uh, like to call it, but when you take a look at the fact that, you know, just 2 million people, I mean, in, in 2006 alone, more than 2 million people uh, in Africa died of AIDS, the world's greatest killer is not terrorism. The world's greatest killer is uh, either the genocide that we could will turn to, or HIV, AIDS, or so forth, so... Uh, we really need to put our global threats in perspective here. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a perception that a lot of people have that it's just normal for um, people in other parts of the world outside of America um, or outside of, you know, rich countries like Europe to, to have a different standard of life, that it's, it's normal that people's, um, you know, uh, their life expectancy is going to be 40, 45 years. It's normal, you know, that the most people... But, you know, the, the, not most people, but the, the, the biggest single cause of death is going to be, you know, this absolutely preventable, absolutely treatable virus. So that's the idea that it's somehow normal for, for Africans or for poor people in other parts of the world to have to endure these conditions when there are things that can be done to change that situation. Um, it just speaks, I think, to a lot of the closed-mindedness of American policymakers and, unfortunately, the American public. If you're just tuning in, you're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Michael Swigert. Am I pronouncing your last name correct? Yep. Uh, we're speaking with Michael Swigert from Africa Action, taking a look at uh, kind of assessing the uh, Bush administration's uh, legacy, if you will, with regard to uh, Africa, this on the heels of his recent trip to to Africa. Um, before we move on to some of the other issues, um, Talk about the, uh, what is it called, the uh, President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Uh, Why the creation of a separate uh, fund rather than uh, the global fund? And what are, you mentioned, uh, the ideological constraints? Mm -hmm. Is is this why he created a separate fund? Yeah, I think it's one reason. Um, The the global fund is the the global fund to to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, which is an initiative... Um, launched in, in, in 2001 
that um, gathered various rich donor countries together in a way to streamline the, the delivery of, of resources from wealthy donor countries through non-governmental organizations and international institutions to the countries most affected by HIV-AIDS. So rather than um, the United States deciding, you know, or President Bush saying, I really want to make uh, fighting AIDS a bigger part of my foreign policy, and therefore I'm going to take a leadership role in this existing multilateral initiative that's designed to do to accomplish these goals, um, he, he decided to launch his own plan, PEPFAR, um, as, as you said. And I think one reason for that is just this trend of, of unilateralism in U.S. foreign policy under the Bush administration, um, you know, a sense of wanting ownership of, of the program. Um, PEPFAR does include um, giving some new funds to the Global Fund, but that's not the bulk of the funding. And um, as for the ideological restrictions, um, which, which differ from the, the way the Global Fund um, disperses money, in, there's a, one, uh, an earmark in, in the legislation for um, the Bush plan, which says that one-third of the funding for all prevention efforts um, prevent, uh, prevention efforts to stop the spread of HIV needs to be spent on abstinence before marriage programs um, and can't be used for comprehensive sex education that includes both abstinence, um, being faithful, uh, or delaying sexual debut, and, and condoms. The, the favored ABC approach, which um, public health expert, experts agree, is the, the most efficient, uh, most effective way to, to fight this crisis. Um, and President Bush was asked a question about this um, earlier uh, in his trip. Uh, I believe it was in Ghana. Um, a reporter put him on the spot and said, you know, th there's evidence out there by, by implementing groups on the ground, by respected um, nonpartisan independent researchers, the, the Institute of Medicine, the, the U.S. General Accounting Office have issued reports saying um, that, you know, these restrictions in this legislation are preventing, you know, U.S. taxpayer dollars from being used effectively and preventing more lives from being saved. Um, and President Bush basically brushed over that. And, and he said, no, I think the program is, is working great. If there was a problem with it, I'd, I'd change it. Um. Hmm. Let me ask uh, maybe a question that represents the elephant in the room, and that is, why is the United States obligated uh, or, or is there an obligation mm -hmm. for the United States to uh, to devote all uh, so so many resources and so much attention to uh, whether it's the AIDS uh, crisis in Africa or, uh, or or any of the problems facing the African continent? So while we could uh, we could make criticism about the fact that the United States is devoting uh, two hundred million a year rather than the three point five mm -hmm. billion or another. Couldn't a caller call into the show and say, well, why is it the United States problem? Don't we have our own issues to deal with? How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 you know, that's a huge question. Um, and I think, one, um, with regard specifically to Africa, the U.S. does have a, a special historical relationship um, to Africa. You know, um, the U.S. wasn't a colonial power in the way that European countries were, um, but there definitely was a pattern of, of resource exploitation and the support of corrupt governments. Um, and, of by, course, the slave trade, which... Yeah, and the slave trade, obviously. That's, <laughs> that's the real elephant in the room. Talk about an elephant, right? Right. Um, so, and, and just, you know, more, so there's a, a historical responsibility there, too. Um, but even if you look beyond that, I think um, U.S. politicians um, and, and analysts and, you know, journalists talk all the time about things like, like human rights and uh, democracy and uh, the importance of, you know, of, of fighting poverty. And, and, um, and the, the United States government has signed on to, to statements, you know, 
to the effect saying that we support fighting poverty worldwide. We we want to we they've, um, the U.S. has affirmed the responsibility to protect that um, you know governments across the world if they're not meeting the needs of their citizens if they're allowing um, militias to you know or or, or um, bandits or or internal violence to to harm their citizens then it's the responsibility of the international community to to help protect those people. So I think. If you if you talk about the the sense of the international community, which is a pretty pretty universally accepted concept, um, and and then you say that it, the U.S. doesn't have a responsibility towards Africa, then that makes that concept of the international community meaningless. Absolutely, and and it it, it provides a good segue um, to perhaps the second. Uh, of maybe uh, a, a triad of uh, issues facing the African continent, and that is the uh, the issue of uh, Africa's debt. Mm-hmm. And certainly, there are ties between the United States and uh, African debt. So, uh, talk about uh, you know we hear campaigns to drop the debt. What is this mm-hmm. all about? Yeah, well, you had. Um African countries um, and, and developing countries around the world accrued a tremendous amount of debt in the sort of from the, the 1970s, 1980s on um, in, in borrowing money both bilaterally from, from rich country lenders like the, the United States um, as well as from international financial institutions like the um, International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or, or the World Bank. And, you know, the, that money was lent supposedly to be used to develop the economies of these countries or to address social problems like lack of education or health issues um, like malaria, HIV, AIDS, um, what have you. And obviously, as, you know, as everyone knows, um, in, in the 1970s and 80s, into the 90s and today in Africa, there have been governments which have been very corrupt, um, you know, who've had dictators, Mobutu from, um, from what was then Zaire, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo today, is a classic example of someone who, you know, took this money that came either in um, grants of development assistance or, or aid and just wasted it all on, you know, personal, um, um, you know, just buying possessions for himself and, and stealing the money of, of the people. So the situation that you have today in Africa um, are, are countries, one, that remain saddled with some of this debt that was lent years ago to corrupt dictators. Um, and at Africa Action, we, uh, we talk about this as it's not just the people who borrowed that, that, that debt um, who, who are complicit in, um, in making the debt illegitimate. If it's someone like a dictator like Mobutu who borrowed a whole bunch of money with no intention of either paying it back or of using that money for the intended purpose of, you know, developing his economy. Um, so he's obviously responsible for that, but so too is the, the international institution or the, um, the governments of the countries that supported making such a loan in the first place when it was obvious that that's what was going to happen or it was certainly something they could have been aware of. So it's a, an interesting comparison when we're going through a period of uh, focus on uh, predatory lending practices here right. in the United States. Absolutely. You know, and uh, we have to, you know, we talked about the slave trade before, but... Uh, Slavery is not about uh, shackles around the ankles. Slavery is about a power relationship and a power dynamic. And so there's certainly economic slavery as well. And it seems that uh, the African continent can't get out under uh, this this terrible uh, power relationship with uh, European or, or uh, the American uh, government. Um, you know, the, what is it, the All-Africa Conference of Churches called mm-hmm. this debt a new form of slavery. Right. Which, uh, which is really, 
it, it really does make sense. And, and of course, it's just ironic as far as I'm concerned that uh, African, the African continent uh, combined owes some $200 billion, and yet what is uh, the United States' current uh, deficit and, and debt to, to China? And, and I mean, it's, it's just ironic that... Uh, you know, we're, we're taking from Africa. And, and of course, these are funds that could be used to help with HIV, AIDS, and, right. and uh, famine, and so many other things. And so it's just, it's, it's overwhelming to think about. And uh, certainly the U.S. is the single largest shareholder in the World Bank and the IMF, mm-hmm. which I'm sure listeners of this program know are the institutions uh, to which uh, the Africa's debt is owed. Right, um, and um, I mean, and I think you know I was I was talking talking before about how a lot of this debt is is was loaned um, you know in, in previous decades to dictators, but the, the, the lo- there are still loans being made now by the, the IMF and the World Bank, and they're usually greeted um, you know by by the mainstream media by um, by many analysts as as a success. You know, when there's a bunch of money that's um, supposedly to be used for for for, for development or to fight poverty. Um, but like you said, it's when there are these these restrictions on how the money can be spent, um, limitations on you know the IMF um, has a serious problem in lending its money um, to, um, to to African countries. You have to qualify by saying we're not going to use um, we're not going if in order to qualify for this loan, we agree to not hire any more doctors up to a certain point, or we're not going to spend more money on healthcare to a certain point because that would you know, lead us to have uh, a deficit, and we wouldn't be able to have a balanced budget. And by the judgment of IMF economists, um, you know, that would mean that the, the money was being wasted. Even though the reason the loan was made in the first place was to hire more doctors or to you know to address public health problems. Right. These are the the the, the structural adjustment uh, requirements. You know, right. also that you don't uh, you don't socialize uh, health care or uh, water supplies or, or or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, uh, one can't ignore, when, while we're talking about the, the confluence of uh, the AIDS crisis and the, the African debt to these institutions, uh, the role of the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. in protecting patents right. and uh, preventing generic drugs. Can you uh, just touch upon that briefly? Yeah. Um, PEPFAR uh, came out with a report um, a, a couple of years ago, you know, Saying that we absolutely, you know, we, we want this, the use of this money to be uh, efficient. We want to take the, the, the taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer money that, that's used to fight AIDS in Africa to, to go as far as it can. So we're, you know, over two thirds of, of our of the antiretroviral drugs that we purchase and and disperse to African communities um, are generic drugs, and that was a mischaracterization that was looking at only a certain sample of the communities and um, in countries that they were working with. I mean, o- overall, it's it's a, a minority, definitely less than half um, of of the drugs that that are purchased, um, you know, with, with with the funds for the the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief that go to Africa are from big pharmaceutical companies rather than you know medicines that could do exactly the same job for for much less money and thus put more people on treatment and save more lives. So I think it's something one which needs to change. Um, there's um, you know the, the scientific research on on how to treat. AIDS or how to prevent HIV from developing into full-blown AIDS has, has made incredible strides over the past decade and really tremendous strides over the past just several years. And it's, it, if communities um, in, in developing countries in, in Africa 
are to be able to have access to the same series of, of first-line, second-line medications that they need to really be able to, you know, beat back this, this pandemic, to, um, to beat the virus. Um, you know, the access to the same medicines that are available for wealthy people in, in the United States, then the only way to do that is to buy the cheap generic drugs. Um, and that's just not happening right now at, as, as much as it should be. We're speaking with Michael Swigert from Africa Action. And uh, how are you on time? I said I'd keep you about a half hour, but uh, I have a few more questions if that's all right. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we've talked about uh, the uh, African debt. We've talked about HIV AIDS. And we've seen the relationships uh, between those two. And uh, perhaps the third uh, in the triad of, of major issues facing uh, Africa uh, is is really political, and uh, we, we've certainly got the uh, the crisis in Kenya, um, but we've got this this genocide that the United States acknowledged as a genocide in uh, 2004, uh, taking place in uh, Western Sudan. Yet the United States hasn't really done anything about it. So. Could you tell the listeners the, the origin of that briefly? We don't, you know, have the time to get into, you know, the, the, the lengthy history. But, you know, the left, and we talked about this a couple of days ago, it seems that those on the left um, kind of have a, a, a complex. It, it, on one hand, they want the United States to uh, be a leader in human rights issues. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they, from the left side of their mouth, they talk that way. From the right side of our mouth, we uh, always express concern that placing uh, peacekeeping missions on the ground in hot spots is a pretext for imperialism. So what is the nature of the problem and how can the United States or the United Nations be a positive role without that slippery slope of becoming an occupying force? Right. Um, and you could do a PhD on that alone. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I think it's, you know, the, the, complex, uh, the conflict in, in, in Darfur, which is related to the, you know, the, the longstanding civil war between North and South Sudan, that was, there was a peace agreement for that in 2005. Um, so it's obviously a very complex history that I can't, can't go into so briefly. But um, basically the, the current regime that's in power in Khartoum, which is the capital of Sudan, um, has, been, has been in power since 1989 when, when they seized power. And it's just an incredibly repressive regime, um, which has marginalized uh, the political rights, um, the economic rights of its citizens throughout the country in, you know, in, in Darfur, in, in other regions in the north of Sudan, in East Sudan, everywhere pretty much outside their, the real constituency um, around the capital, which is, is very developed. Um, you know, so they've, they followed a similar pattern of, of governing, you know, just to enrich themselves, to stay in power, um, to please their a small range of their constituents um, and, and ignoring the rest of the, the populations in their country since 1989. So I think that's ultimately the biggest factor, although there's, of course, a lot of other complicated things we could talk about that's, that led to um, the situation in, in Darfur that broke out in, in 2003, 2004. Why has the United States uh, failed to place pressure on the Sudanese government? I mean, you know, we, we, we hear all the time that President Bush is placing pressure, and they're doing, they're doing something. They're just not doing enough. Um, you, you know, they, um, President Bush just appointed a new special envoy, uh, Richard Williamson, who's, you know, a very, very capable, um, 
career diplomat and, and public servant to, to meet with, um, to be the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan to, to deal with the situation in Darfur. And he isn't even resourced with a full diplomatic team. Um, I mean, you can see that there, it's possible for the U.S. to make a difference, um, not even in terms of a peacekeeping operation, but just diplomatically. Um, the U.S. was a key broker in the 2005 North-South Sudan peace agreement because it devoted serious diplomatic capital to doing this. So as for why they haven't done it with Sudan now, I think um, with, with, with the situation in Darfur, um, I think one problem is that there's still uh, a priority for the Bush administration that if we take the, you know, we take the kid gloves off and we really play hardball with, with Khartoum and, and make this, uh, you know, this dictatorship feel that there will be consequences um, for not complying with what the international community is telling them to do, then they'll lose a strategic partner in the, in the war on terror because, um, you know, Osama bin Laden was in Sudan um, in, in the 1990s, um, and after that, the, you know, the U.S. Um, put a lot of pressure on Khartoum to provide intelligence for Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa on the, the operation of, of groups like al-Qaeda and other terrorist movements. So, you know, it's unclear exactly what the nature of this relationship is still, but I think, you know, if the U.S. wanted to put more pressure on um, on Sudan, they could. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was uh, I just opened up uh, an article from uh, the Village Voice, mm-hmm. uh, May uh, 26th, 2005, which I have on my website, um, and uh, it's Nat Hentoff, who is, you know, one of my favorite columnists, and he, he talks about how uh, in April 29th, the Los Angeles Times had right. an article titled, uh, Official Pariah Sudan Valuable to America's War on Terrorism. Mm-hmm. And uh, it pretty much says pretty much what you have said, that the United States is reluctant to put pressure on Sudan because they are, you know, uh, supposedly providing assistance with uh, the war on terror, providing information on al-Qaeda, um, juxtaposing that with the over 450,000 people that have lost their lives in right. what the U.S. acknowledges uh, is, is a genocide, and it just, um, it just boggles the mind. Um, finally, and uh, then I want to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about uh, Africa Action and uh, the different activist toolkits you have, but w- I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about AFRICOM, particularly as mm-hmm. uh, Justice or Justice spends so much time focusing on issues of uh, militarism and peace. We heard a little bit about it. We uh, we know that uh, there was much resistance to it uh within the African continent. What is AFRICOM? Yeah, AFRICOM is it's the new uh, U.S. Unified Command for Africa. So they have these, these joint unified commands, um, PACOM, CENTCOM, um, for other regions around the world that coordinate um, U.S. military efforts you know, across different um, branches of the, of the military. So last spring, President Bush announced that they were going to create um, this new program to coordinate on military efforts in Africa. Um, it's based on a proposal by two researchers for the Heritage Foundation that came up with this idea a couple years ago and have been um, developing it with the Defense Department uh, since then. And supposedly, uh, the goal of this program will be to bring peace and development and democracy and human rights to Africa, even though it's a military initiative. And there already are U.S. programs through the State Department, through um, the U.S. Agency of, for International Development, um, supposedly to, to help do that. We were just talking about one of them, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So supposedly it's a, it's a new plan to increase relationships between the U.S. military and African governments for the pur- purpose of promoting peace and democracy, which is a little counterintuitive, I think, um, as to how that works, because 
how that would work. Um, because if you have, you know, uh, Defense Department officials or, you know, uniformed U.S. military officers working um, with, with government officials or no matter what their relationships are uh, in, in the foreign country that they're in, or their priorities are overall going to be geostrategic interests and, and military priorities, not human development. Well, which brings us full circle because, uh, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people are, aren't out to get you. So when we talked before about how the left kind of has this, uh, uh, you know, this, this uh, hypocritical stance about mm-hmm. we want uh, there to be m- more uh, of a humanitarian presence, but we don't want uh, it to be backed by the Pentagon or the, right. the Defense Department. So th- there is reason to be concerned about, uh, about this. What about, uh, you know, we hear about, uh, comp- uh, we hear about competition for uh, Africa's natural resources, competition with China and, uh, and Europe. What, what is that all about? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, as yeah, as we've seen, the situation in in the Middle East and in is is is, in, is always unstable, and and the amount of oil that the U.S. is dependent on from from Middle Eastern countries is is phenomenal. And Africa, you know, possesses an estimated maybe a quarter of the the world's overall oil reserves. So this is something which people have been aware of for a while, and I think Africom is is an extension of that. They're looking to, um, I mean, the the countries that, that President Bush visited, um, you know, Liberia and Benin, sort of near Nigeria, which is a, a huge oil producer, um, and uh, the military operations that the U.S. has been conducting, training of, of African militaries, has really been focused in oil-rich states. So I think what, what's dangerous is, and I, I, I get concerned sometimes when people even talk about this because you don't want it to be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I don't think we're there yet, but um, of the competition between the U.S. and China for Africa's resources just turning in, into kind of a Cold War redux where you have, you know, it's just these, this country's just seen as, as a place to exploit for, for oil, for uranium, for coltan, uh, natural resources without, um, without actually figuring out how these resources can be used, you know, fairly to, um, to develop the, the economies of, of African countries. Mm. Well, tell our listeners in the time remaining about Africa Action and in particular about the, uh, the resources that you make available. You've got uh, great uh, activist uh, resources, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately this is a program that tries to emphasize uh, taking action. So tell us about the, the action part of Africa Action. Yeah, well, Africa Action, um, you can go to our website. It's www.africaaction.org. Um, so we've got pretty much all our resources hosted on our website. Uh, we call ourselves the, the oldest organization in the U.S. Um, advocating exclusively for, for African affairs, and that uh, we trace our lineage back to a couple other organizations um, that go back to the 1950s and 1960s that, that merged in 2001 to take the name Africa Action. But our predecessor organizations uh, worked on the independent struggle. They were um, U.S., you know, multiracial civil rights activists supporting the, the independence movements in, in, across Africa. And then those organ- same organizations went on to, to work on the anti-apartheid movement. So we try and keep those same principles of, of solidarity in mind in the work that we do now uh, um, in promoting social, political, and economic justice in Africa by influencing U.S. foreign policies. So um, we have three campaigns right now, uh, and we, we, talk, we talked about all of them on HIV-AIDS in Africa, stopping the genocide in Darfur and resolving Sudan's other conflicts, 
and canceling 100% of Africa's debt. So if you want to get involved with that, we, um, as Jarrett said, we have a lot of great resources about how to educate yourself, about opportunities to educate others in your community, or ways to contact your political representatives as a constituent, um, creative fun things to do. Um, so definitely check out our website, africaaction.org, um, and you can sign up to, to get a list of, of our alerts, upcoming events, upcoming ways to take action. And you've also got, I mean, you've got tools there that extend beyond Africa Action. I mean, yeah. you've got uh, how to get press for an event, mm-hmm. um, how to uh, write a letter to the editor or an op-ed. Those things are very difficult to get published, you know. Yeah. The, the so-called free press has uh, a lot of restrictions. Uh, how to work with the media, mm-hmm. uh, how to work with members of Congress. It's, uh, it's really, uh, and then fact sheets and things that, you know, are just downloadable uh, PDFs to, uh, to Xerox and, and hand out and not worry about uh, ownership and, and plagiarism. And there's just so many great resources. So also uh, top 10 ways to take action. Uh, organizing tools, materials, um, talking points. So uh, it's really a great, uh, a great resource. It's AfricaAction.org, and uh, it's just a great resource. So Michael Swigert, I want to thank you so much for for being with us this morning, and we'll have to have you back real soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Jared. Thanks. Thank you.